Welcome everyone. My name is Manuela Arciniegas and I'm the director of the Andrus Family Fund and this is the Out of the Margins podcast. Today we have a very special treat. We are joined by former and current board members of the Andrus Family Fund and they are here to talk with us a little bit about some of the journey that they've been doing through this COVID Black Lives Matter uprising moment. We're joined by Lindsay Griffith, the chair of the AFF board, by Molly Thorpe, former chair and current board member of AFF. We're also joined by Stephanie Cardone, who used to be the vice chair of AFF and has, after her eight years of wonderful service, has since moved on to do very amazing things out in the Boston area. And finally, we have with us Kelly Nolan, one of the founders and original creators of the Andrews Family Fund Board and the Andrews Family Philanthropic Program. Kelly is now a member of the Serta Foundation Board, our parent fund, and our conversation today is geared towards bringing all of the powerful wisdom and insights these wonderful ladies have around what it means to be a trustee member in this season, this wonderful moment of opportunity challenging moment of crisis facing all communities, particularly black, brown, indigenous, people of color communities. And so I'm really excited for this conversation that we hope you trustees who are out there listening will be inspired by. Why doesn't everyone just jump right in? Let's start a little bit with Lindsay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do out and about in the world, and one story that you think encapsulates how the AFF board service has impacted you. Thanks, Manuela. Hey, everybody. It's uh, great to be here today. So I'm Lindsay Griffith. I am a fifth generation outlaw, which in our in our family means that I'm married in in the Serna and and the Andrews family. If you are a spouse of a member of the family bloodline descending from Johnny Andrus, you're able to participate in these incredible programs and philanthropic efforts. I'm so grateful for that. I have a son who's now sixth generation. So I've been thinking a lot about what, you know, the legacy of next generation programs for philanthropy and what that means in this, in this moment, what it really would mean to show up to be anti-racist. There's a lot of conversations going on in these all white spaces. And I know you can't see us on a podcast, but surprise, all of the trustees and former trustees on this call are all white. <laughs> so we're having, you know, real-time reckoning. We're really lucky that we have such incredible staff and grantee partners that are able to, you know, be with us on what is really a learning journey, I think, for trustees in this moment. You know, even though AFF has been doing this work for 20 years, as Kelly will talk about, we've got a long way to go and we continue to learn and make steps so for me, I think in my personal life, you know, the learning journey of AFF has really, I think, influenced everything I do. I try and bring the lessons and the power and the focus on this question of building an anti-racist society that our grantees challenge us with every day to the work I do, which in my case is environment, climate change, and policy work. Government is one of the more challenging places to unwind this question of white supremacy and racism. And I think it's been, it's been really instructive for me to learn about these things and then see 
how they play out in, in my everyday life. And that's been, you know, that's just been an incredible journey that I've been on so far. And I, I feel very lucky to, you know, be a part of the AFF family and the broader family of trustees that are out there doing this work. So thank you for having me today. Thank you so much, Lindsay. This is the last month of your service as chair of the Angus Family Fund Board. We're blessed that you will be with us two more years to complete your eight-year term. It's been quite a learning journey. We are a learning board. There are three community board members, people of color who work in philanthropy and in community, who are also on the AFF board. And Lindsay, we're really, really excited that you've been able to really share some of your powerful policy work, your leadership on the board and in service of our movement partners. Molly, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Molly Thorpe. I am a sixth generation Andrus family member and am here sort of serving in my final term in my role as board member. You know, I, as I think about my tenure here on the board, even picking a single memory is, is challenging because it's been such a, a rewarding and beneficial experience and contributed to so much of my uh, personal and professional growth. But I think you know, really early on getting to participate in sort of the reimagining and rewriting of our theory of change really to me demonstrated one, the lack of knowledge and understanding that I had around the space and, and you know, how the, the theory of change we were working with could be improved upon and really, uh, you know, shift to be more pointedly uh, focused around social justice and racial justice and really naming the work we wanted to support and the communities we wanted to support and examining our values as board members, sort of some of those early conversations that helped us craft that theory of change. I think through this conversation, you'll hear from me a lot about sitting with discomfort and participating in uncomfortable conversations. And for me, that first conversation and workshop around values and, you know, funding priorities really challenged my thinking around language, around, you know, group decision making within a room of 12 people. How do we come to consensus? So excited to be here, Manuela. Thanks for including me. You know, it's so beautiful to hear you reflect on the arc of learning and what that journey was like for you personally. And you are night and day to who I met, first met <laughs> a few years ago when I first met you on the AFF board. And the fact that you all took on the work of talking about race and power in the context of participating democratically, of civically engaging, is really, really the project of what this nation was founded on and that it required being uncomfortable, right? Thank you so much for sharing how, how pivotal and how formative that experience was. So we're going to start backtracking a little bit, going back in time, the timeline of AFF history, and I'm going to jump to Stephanie. So Stephanie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you out and about in the world today? Hi, everybody. I am an artist and a teacher. I teach at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. I was on the board from 2008 to 2017. When I joined the board, I also was new to the U.S., more or less. I had just moved here for graduate school, and um, I'd, been, I'd grown up in France. Um, so I was bringing, I don't know, all kinds of unknowns. 
And I would say the journey for me has been a great one. Vision or understanding I had of philanthropy coming to AFF was really what one would define as charity. And wow, I mean, I, I think I've gone from from really seeing it as charity to becoming pretty uh, adamantly anti-racist in all of my work and practices now uh, as a teacher, as a parent of twins who are sixth generation Andrus family. Certainly as an artist, I now work primarily on issues of climate justice, environmental justice, and the inequitable impacts of climate change on populations. I, I, sh I should add that you know, when I, when I joined the board, as I said, it was the founding board and the founding executive director. And since then, we've now had two women of color who have been executive directors, phenomenal individuals, incredibly liberating people in my life on my path towards liberation. And we now have community board members, which was once my eyes were opened to all of this that I'll get into, this big mess that I'll get into, I, it just became my mission, you know, my personal mission that many others helped. I love it. Absolutely, Stephanie. I remember, because I grew up with ASF just like you, right? I've been working at ASF for the past five or six years, and it was my reintroduction into social justice philanthropy. And I have occupied all of the levels and professional positions in the organization. And so I've been growing alongside all of, all of you. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that you said is that there was a shift from your orientation. What was that shift between charity? You went from a charity mindset to, to what kind of mindset and what is really different? It was sort of this acknowledgement of my power as a white person that was that was dawning on me and access to money and there were these these moments that just sat really in my gut as wrong when when we were doing the work early on when grantees would come to visit us in our Madison Avenue offices and the room was prepared with boxes of Kleenex on all the tables. The grantees would come in and sit on one end and often youth who were in the foster care system would share their life story and board members would start to cry. And mm -hmm. I just, uh, I, I mean, I'm being really raw, but it, it just felt so wrong. It felt so exploitative and I, yeah. you know, that it's, it's interesting how some of these things just start in the gut and you can't exactly name what the problem is or what the solution is, but just, there's just something that's ringing off. To me, it was like, this is charity. Those were the moments when our, as a board, we started examining our own privilege more and st really started doing the work of learning, you know, what it is to be white in the United States of America. I think what's integral here is as our listening um, audience is tuning in, particularly for trustees, what I'm hearing in your story is the importance of the personal, that this was an embodied journey of discovery and learning, and that sometimes there had not yet been language or education or tools or space to really unpack what was really happening and what you were viscerally experiencing in your body. Um, and in your identity, in your subject position as a white woman of a wealthy background, but that you knew something was out of alignment for you. And since then, I know you've taken this long, long journey to unpack that. Um, so we will definitely circle back to, to such a rich comment that you just made, Stephanie. But I want to turn to Kelly Nolan, who has been 
goodness, Kelly, you've been like a cheerleader, champion, um, a, a co-conspirator, like right alongside all of us to really help continue to champion spaces of learning and development and pulling in other generations of the Andrews family into the work that uh, Stephanie is describing, uh, the personal journey that was, was a political journey, it was, that becomes an institutional journey that has impacts across society, right? Kelly, tell me a little bit about who you are, the origin story of ASF. How did you come to the work that you're doing today? And anything that you feel really exemplifies, like, the heart of why you do this, the work that you're doing in this season in philanthropy? Thank you so much, Manuela. And what fun to be in the company of these amazing women and cousins and family members and, and Manny, your family as well. So I just feel really honored to be a part of this podcast, this dialogue. My name's Kelly Nolan, fifth gen family member of the Andrus family. And I would say probably a little bit more on the older end of the fifth generation. And I was blessed with being a founding board member of the Andrus Family Fund when it was launched back in 2000. There were eight of us that got together in a room. We were cousins and we had never met each other before. Our family is very large, nearing, I think, 500 extended family members today. And these cousins and I created a vision for what maybe the Andrus Family Fund might be. I'm also a board member of now the Cerdna Foundation over the last decade or more. And I'm the chair of the Andrus Family Philanthropy Program. So not to like add all these titles, but just to say that I've been deeply committed and embedded in a journey personally and collectively in philanthropy and social justice. I, you know, used to be a a marketing and communications and media professional and really found philanthropy was more of my calling. I currently run my own consulting practice and work with family foundations around the country on, on different, different areas of need. And and I even have a vision statement that I've worked on and a lot of work that I've done to, to try to manifest my leadership, to manifest and find and discover my superpowers, so to speak, in service of impact in this world, in service of greater a greater calling than myself. And, and I'll just read you, I mean, my vision statement that I look at every day as I go into working with predominantly white families of wealth is that, that my leadership and vulnerability shift power for justice. And mm. I, you will hear me talk about vulnerability and, um, and, and I might steal a little of that from, you know, the legendary Brene Brown, but I really truly have found that, that being vulnerable in this space is actually a superpower for, for trustees to be able to be vulnerable, particularly white trustees to be vulnerable, talking about issues of race and, and justice and, and recognizing all of our blind spots and our biases and our racism, we have got to be vulnerable. We have got to put ourselves out there. And my goal in this work that I do with families and in my own philanthropy, you know, within the Andrus Collective is to make sure those power dynamics are called out, are owned, there's accountability and transparency, and that we look how to share and shift power in service of a higher calling. We didn't use language back then talking about power or social justice or racial equity, but we were doing and looking deeply at work embedded with that, those principles and values and mission. And it it was an opening for me, um, AFF was, 
that set me on a course that, that I've never looked back and has continued to shape who I am as an individual. So I'll stop there. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Kelly, for sharing your personal mission statement. I mean, this is your career and it's been your calling, as you mentioned, and you've evolved in and grown into it. And some of the arena for that development was the learning opportunities that the foundation made a commitment to create for members of the family. And I think that what that vision speaks to is a belief that transformation is needed is possible once cultivated. And you said vulnerability is required. And Stephanie talked a little bit about values around justice and the human dignity and equality. What does it mean to be vulnerable and hold vulnerability as a family, as a trustee at a foundation? To think about the way you live, the values of the fund in your personal lives, to really examine your personal power and privilege. You know, those, no easy thing in this season for anybody uh, working as a trustee in this particular season. And what are some of the qualities that have been pulled out of you and being called forth? Yeah, I think in this season, I feel like I've really transitioned from student to the teacher. I live in Minneapolis and actually live just about five blocks away from where George Floyd was murdered. So there's no avoiding the conversations about the systems that, you know, led to his murder and the systems that we all live within. And I think to your question around uh, discomfort and vulnerability, we've created a space where it's okay to not know the right language to use to use the wrong word for something, to say, I don't know, or, or I don't know what my opinion is yet. I need to learn more. I think we've worked really hard over the years to cultivate that space and to cultivate sort of a, a living, breathing um, set of values that as new members cycle on, as our fearless leaders cycle off, as there's been changes within staff and leadership, I still feel like as an institution, we hold that as really crucial to the, the work and the conversations that take place. So, you know, here in the last few months where there's been a real groundswell of people wanting to have that, those conversations and to educate themselves, you know, repurposing and really thinking through my own education around uh, social and racial justice and anti-racist work and sort of what those resources have been that have been helpful to me, given the, the amount of impact sort of on our world. <laughs> like, where do you start? So thinking through like how I sort of become the educator and, and have those conversations. And Manuel, you asked about, you know, personal fundraising and one of my fellow board members and our vice chair right now, Megan Kelly, started a sort of personal fundraiser for the movement for black lives. And that was really my first personal experience in asking my friends and family for money for a specific organization and a specific cause. I think I realized how much I was caught up in my own head about that ask because the, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, you know, congratulated me for even just taking that step and saying like, as I sort of move into this next chapter of my life and I have friends who are professionals and our disposable income increases, like how do we hold each other accountable? So there's been a lot. This work took me years to do and everyone's at a different space in their learning journey and their, you know, anti-racist work and activism. So 
having wonderful educators and leaders like yourself, Manuela, who helped us have these conversations over the years, just acknowledging that that in and of itself is one of the greatest privileges I think serving on, on AFF has brought me. So I just want to add something there. You know, I think what Molly says is just really, really important. And two things, one, you know, AFF is truly a model. As I look at AFF over the last decade, the culture that you've all built, the aspects and the element and the ways you built and hold space for each other to do very deep learning, to have very complex conversations, and to hold that space, to hold that discomfort with each other, you are a model in this field. And there's work that certain foundation board can learn from AFF's board and the learning kind of culture that you've developed and designed. So I, I just want to name that and, and hope that some way we, we package that and share that with the world because so many could learn from that. But what I worry about is that that moment where white people get a little fatigued. White people kind of get fatigued and start to get a little more complacent and a little more lax. And we can easily go right back to our little white bubbles and privileged lives. And we don't actually have to keep doing this. That's privilege, right? And so the call to action in this moment for all of us, particularly if you view your family foundation as a public trust, we are stewarding and shepherding resources and moving resources and making decisions with communities for a greater calling than ourselves, right? And so if we're going to truly be effective, we cannot get lax. We cannot go back and be back in our little privileged bubbles. And so how do we find moments of replenishment and joy and experiences with each other that keep us steadfast, that keep us able to sustain the work that we have to do to stand up against racism. I'm reflecting on my podcast recording with um, our movement partners who are doing work to end gun violence, lift up more restorative approaches to supporting communities that don't involve incarceration, criminalization, and frankly, the murder of Black people, the unabashed, unpunished murder of Black people that this nation was founded on. And one of the most powerful things that has happened following the uprisings is that it was evident freedom and liberation work is life and death work that has been advanced in communities for as long as this nation has been founded, right? Um, and that folks are leading themselves through it with and without philanthropic resources. And that the work of bringing along funders is integral and important and rest on the shoulders of those who are closest to the wealth, like you guys, and that you have leaned into opportunities to develop yourself, to develop the skills, to acquire the knowledge, and frankly, just to hold the discomfort and make comparisons around, like, what is risky to you versus what is risky to the young people on those front lines? And can we think about what it means to work through fatigue? This conversation come up a lot, you guys, in spaces. I mean, Pastor Mike said yesterday on that call, He's from the Live Free campaign. This is not a new moment. Uh, black people have been asking for the end and defunding and just like complete abolishing of these systems that are systems of control uh, set up to defend white supremacy and power and privilege. And it's really interesting to think about what motivated the people in your peer circle, Mali, to show up for this conversation because we all collectively saw the murder of Eric Gardner I can't breathe. We saw the murder of Emmett Till. 
right? A young black boy from, from the South. So these are like actually really formative parts of American history, and they have been a part of public consciousness. So my curiosity is, what is different in this moment? Uh, what's it going to take to really capitalize on this opportunity? Like, what did you see that was different around the curiosity and the searching of your peers? And what changed in you as you rose to meet that moment? I wanted to pick up on something that Kelly said about, you know, as white folks, we don't have to keep doing this, right? We have the privilege to retreat into our, our white bubbles. And while that is absolutely true, I don't think it's true if you feel like you have lost your humanity by participating in this. I don't think that's true if you really reflect on this as what it is, you know, the loss of life, the danger, the fact that a child can't play out in the street without getting shot. If you put yourself in the shoes of these families, you know, what is it about this particular moment? Maybe social media has something to do with it. Maybe it's COVID and the, the urgency of the pandemic that has something to do with it, that we were already also raw. Death was becoming a daily thing for everyone. There were so many uncertainties and unknown and everybody's vulnerability was perhaps a little bit more heightened. As a white person, I am so directly implicated every day. It, it, is, it is very much resting on the shoulders of white folks right now to start becoming gatekeepers in, in a responsible sense. And, and maybe that touches on the trustee thing and, and Lindsay can pick up, but I, you are, that is your role. You are a gatekeeper. And so who, to whom will you open those gates? Who will you welcome to the table? Um, how will you share the power? How will you relinquish some of your power how will you question the fears that you have around relinquishing that power? Um, when will you learn to trust? So Stephanie used the word trust, which I want to pick up on because the Anders Family Fund right now, we've been talking a lot about trust and a lot about what it means to do trust-based philanthropy. Before I get into that, I'll say really, I wanna also address though, you know, you asked the question, Manuela, of what it means to have these conversations with family. And Kelly and I were lucky to be able to host a conversation with our own extended family to, you know, talk about what systemic racism is, do some of the learning together that we've been able to do on the AFF board. And it's in that learning space that we've been able to unpack and discover our vulnerability, which has led to us building the types of relationships with our peers and with our grantee partners that are really partnerships and not transactional, that are no longer, I think, you know, as best as we can. And we still fail on this all the time. But we do our best to have relationships that are honest, that are transparent, and that are based on trust. And, you know, having built that foundation meant that, you know, this year I've been very proud and honored to be a part of the AFF family and the grantees that we have, because I think we've been able to be in relationship with them in a way that let us listen. You know, when COVID first came up around, there was a lot of uncertainty about what would happen. What would happen to our grantees that are youth organizers who were perhaps had lost their other source of income or what about those organizations that didn't have internet access at the homes of most of their employees? I think because we had really taken the time to do a lot of the learning 
that allowed us to be in relationship with our grantees in an honest way, we were immediately able to ask them these questions and find a way of moving forward with providing them what funding we could in the moment to make sure that they could sustain and that they'll be there on the other side of this crisis. And so, you know, we reassessed immediately what our short-term grant-making strategy was, did a really quick, you know, getting money out the door. And when I say reassess, I mostly mean around process because we had the faith and confidence in the work that our staff had done because trust-based philanthropy is not just about your external facing, it's also about the practice within the organization. So being able to, you know, empower our staff team to get money out in the fastest way possible, which meant frankly, to, as Stephanie was saying, giving up some of our power as board members, you know, really letting that process move ahead without as much detail and attentiveness as maybe we would have wanted to give. You know, we, we really put an emphasis in, at the Anders Family Fund on learning about what the grant making process is. So our, our board members are very involved in that. And we knew that this was not the time, right? There is a time for that type of learning and that type of growth. And there is also a time to focus on getting the dollars where they need to be. And that's, you know, we were able to make those shifts this year in real time because we really wanted to embody those values of trust-based philanthropy. It just became even more apparent that not only was this moment about providing survival for our partners, but also about maybe an opportunity to guarantee more survival in the future for the communities they want to serve. And so to be able to step into that, we really, you know, it's our 20th anniversary this year. So we've been trying to vision what it would mean to have the next 20 years to solve some of these problems that our grantees have been working on, right? What would it look like to have a world without youth prisons? What would that look like? We're going to continue with that work, but we're also, you know, the movement on the ground right now that Molly was talking about, that's an incredible opportunity for a funder like us to step into a space and to offer what's necessary. And so I think we're, we're excited to be in partnership with those grantees as we have been for years. As Manuela mentioned, since, since this all started like five or seven years ago, you know, when we, when we revisit our theory of change, um, it's been a journey. And I think one of our board members put it really well when he said, we already have everything we need. We just need to let go a little bit and let these things move ahead. We have to trust. That was just really powerful. And I think that, you know, because of the good work of everybody who's come before me as chairs and vice chairs and members of AFF, we're now, you know, in a position where we can do what we have to for our grantees and also find a way hopefully to keep visioning for the future with them. Thank you for joining us for this first part of a two-part series on Out of the Margins podcast, where trustees of the Andrews Family Fund and Cerna Foundation Board reflect on what it has meant to show up for racial and social justice in this season. Please join us for part two of this conversation right here on Out of the Margins.